Hello, Internet, and welcome to the Friendship Snake Podcast. I am your host, Wade Mariano, and am joined as always by Trace Finicaro and and the uh, great group Snake Sage of Snapalachia. That is a one Gunner Kennedy. All right, folks, let's just jump and dive right in. Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, a beloved uh, member of the science community, um, I've heard him speak. I like his public persona for sure. Uh, there have been it's not been a great week for him. Uh, there have been some sexual misconduct allegations uh, that have come out, and by three women, from what I understand, it's weird because it was reported by a religion and spirituality website. I think Pathos or something it's called. So maybe unfairly, I immediately dismiss it, but. The allegations kind of go like this. So the first allegation apparently happened back in 1980, 1984. So are we like 33 years ago? So apparently uh, this woman that he knew in graduate school at the University of North Texas, I think it was. A university in Texas, we'll say, because that's not really important. Um, she said that she was given... A drink by Mr. Tyson, and she woke up in his bed essentially the next day. So she feels that she she believes that she was drugged and raped. Apparently, she reported this, but it's unclear when she reported it. It definitely makes it seem like um, she reported this uh, much much later, like possibly potentially years after it happened, and um, she started like kind of uh this outcry and kind of started posting that these things in 2014 um which it's kind of interesting because that's i'm pretty sure that's when like into the cosmos may have started like to gain popularity maybe even a little bit before that uh the other woman uh, said she worked uh for him in like the into the cosmos things i think like in in, it's some form of uh like, I don't know if she was a producer or something like that. Or, but she worked with him professionally, not in a science thing, in, like, an entertainment kind of aspect or whatever. Not that that really matters at all. Um, but she said he invited her to his place for wine and cheese. And he gave her, like, a weird handshake, like, with his thumb, like, feeling her pulse or something like that. One, two, three, four. I yeah. Her thumb more. Yeah. <laughs> And she uh, said that she was really creeped out and she quit that day, apparently, after he apologized because, he, I guess, he said he claimed his intent was not to seduce her. <laughs> With um, his but just, thumb. Just to have some wine and cheese. You know the old, uh, you know, the old, like, handshake thumb rape trick? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, maybe Cosby knows. He'd be the one to ask. There's, there's a, there's a jiu-jitsu thing if you step on somebody's foot in just the right place, it, like, pins them right to the ground and they can't move. Maybe that's what he was going for. He yeah. thought he had the foot. Like a thumb war? <laughs> One, actually, I think that that should become um, a, a part. You know, like, I think that, that if we made the thumb war a regular thing, general violence and ill will would just, like, evaporate because you just get it out there. <laughs> At the thumb war? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I mean, like, unless unless someone's, like, really, like, pissed off and it escalates to a knife, it escalates to, like, the jet. Uh, what was the... What was the freaking movie? Um, Where they like wrapped arms and got da, a knife da, da, fight? Da, 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 da. Yes. Thriller. 
Or no, beat it. Beat it was the music video. Well, beat it, beat happened. it did it too, too. But they had. I think they. I think they did that in um, West Side Story. What's, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Where like they wrap arms together and they like do that weird knife fight thing. You know? <clears throat> What's the Star Trek thing where you just touch somebody's neck and then you can rape? Oh, them? the that's the Vulcan death grip. The Vulcan or, rape. Well, grip. it's not yeah. death grip. Well, that, that no, that that's the Vulcan nerve pinch. That's it, Vulcan nerve, nerve but pinch. But that only that the, the the rape can only potentially happen when the Vulcans are in the throes of Ponfar. Oh, is that a location? Is their, which is their five year? No, which is their five year uh, mating cycle? Oh. They have to return to their home planet and get it on. Otherwise, they will go insane. And well, that die. makes sense why they don't get all rapey with that nerve pinch. Well, they, I mean, if you ever see the episode where uh, Spock or uh, Tuvok are in the thro- in the throes of Ponfar, there might be like some potential rapiness. Like he does, he does like uh, he does proceed to put like Spock proceeds to put his fist through a console, and then I think he may have attempted to mount it, much like Bogo did the fence post. <laughs> a console. He tried having well, you know, like, with, I'll, 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 with an electronic. Well, I mean, you know, like the the computer console. I mean, like you know, every everything, every computer in Star Trek in the bright future was like here. This takes up an entire fucking desk. We've built this is all electronics, microelectronics. Yes, it shrank to the size of a room. <laughs> so the third woman, who is the most recent, said that he. He well, she described it as reached into her dress um, to look at a tattoo, right? To look at it to examine a tattoo, but apparently they were discussing her tattoos, and it was of the solar system. And he just moved like a like one of the straps um, of a of like a sleeveless dress, or I think that's what it was. It so was, it was her shoulder. It, could it was her shoulder. Tank, it wasn't. It, uh, it wasn't actually been... reaching into her dress. It was kind of a moving it to see the tattoo, apparently, which. So I guess like all this, all currently, all these combined, and this is a difficult thing. This is my problem with it. I don't really have a problem with it. I internally have a problem with it because I really like Neil deGrasse Tyson, and I don't want to believe he's creepy. But he totally has the capacity to be creepy because I only know him from his interviews and stuff like that. I don't personally know this guy, right? Right. Um, it's like Cosby. Nobody wanted to think it, and then you know, after enough allegations came out, you're like, well. <laughs> The chances of all of these allegations being false are too low. And it's also my other kind of the thing that kind of these are kind of fucking weak, with the exception of 84, if that actually did happen. Yeah, but even then she doesn't remember it. So it's tough to take that as it's tough to it's tough to persecute somebody when when there's actually no memory of the events. What she does know for sure is she doesn't remember that night and she woke up next to him. She doesn't know that he drugged her. I mean, it, it, it could have been a case with too much alcohol. I mean, I was out just a, just a few weeks ago. I was out, and in my drunken stupor, decided to buy a shot for, for uh, an old classmate that I bumped into. And it was really irresponsible for me to give her more alcohol because she was barely walking. But I was barely walking, right? And she ended up getting carried back to her room that night. I'm sure there's parts of that night that she doesn't remember. Um, I didn't go back to her room with her, by the way. But she was carried back to her room, and she probably blacked out because I put her, I pushed her over the edge. I ended up, I ended up getting sick that night too. Although I do remember, uh, I do remember the night. But those types of things happen in college all the time. Well, so for the for him to be accused when the blackout occurred, for him to be accused of drugging her. Um, sounds very uh, 
I don't know. Well, they, she would need more details. They briefly dated that. as well. It's not right. like there was a random occurrence or like they were <clears throat> they for a brief time they dated. Right. So yeah, maybe she's. I don't know. There's three I, so I, far. I, maybe more will come out of the woodwork. That's possible. Um, but as of right now, I'm kind of withholding judgment because I there's not a ton of evidence. And frankly, do I think Neil deGrasse Tyson might be a little creepy? Sure. Is he probably a little flirty? Sure. But do I think he he would date rape somebody? I'm not there yet. You know what so I mean? He wrote a Facebook provided? essay in response to being accused. And I, I love this excerpt from it. He says, on being accused, uh, Tyson says that men accused of sexual sexual uh, impropriety in the hashtag MeToo era are presumed guilty by the public for a variety of reasons. Most of those reasons are justified. Some of those reasons are unjustified. And he says, evidence matters, but in cases where it's one person's word against another, people tend to pass judgment on who is more credible. And he says, I welcome the upcoming investigations, and I will offer a response to each allegation. So what's interesting is instead of hiding behind the allegations, which is what, which is what most of the guilty parties have been doing. You just don't hear from them after the allegations oh, come out. Wow, that's um, that's actually. I'm sorry. He actually but, says, "Hey, bring them on." I'm just reading up on Pathios, and the best description I've seen so far is that uh, Pathios is effectively the web web MD of uh, religious religious uh, observance. Are you talking about the site that this is the, the site, site that that broke the yes, story? Broke so the that's story. why I said, like, it, yeah, like. You're I saying have some that they have questions some, of they the have source. some ulterior motives, well, possibly. It, it, well, it, it, it's it's um, I mean, like you know, is it trying to do research real quick about like who funds and whatnot? Because I mean, it, it's been around for a while. Um, it it almost looks like it's kind of like the Huffington Post, mm-hmm. where like you know, the, 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 I mean, like there's all this, there's all there's a lot, there's a bunch of discussion about how um they pull the same shit that Gizmos Gizmodo used to do. Or Gawker used to do to its contributors, but it's an aggregate site. Like they don't—they're—they're they're not really a news site per se. You know, like you they're like an, almost like, like an entertainment center. Well, I mean, again, like their primary thing is like a a a not a a an, an a open and broad forum to discuss religion and the new the mm. new whatever you know. But it, it, I, I've found some articles on Pathos before. But the thing is, though, is you have. To, even a stop clock is right twice a day. Just because Pathios broke the story, no, and, and, and that they have a reputation for being anti-cosmos or anti-science, this, doesn't necessarily mean that the allegations are false. But based on the three that we've that we've actually read and looked into, it it does seem like they may this this may have been made up. Like this actually could have been fabricated just to dethrone well, the you know, it may largest also be, spokesperson well, it may also for astrophysicists. It may effectively you were talking click- over me in the world. Sorry. But it may also just be clickbait. I mean like, you know like we, we we live in the you know like part of that like you know like effectively any concept of believe like having any concept of any any news source at this point engaging in new in good faith has been like just kind of fucking irreparably damaged. Yeah, it, I mean it. It probably is clickbait. The thing you have to realize though is whenever clickbait articles like go out of their way to to hurt somebody personally, they can be held 
liable for those articles. Yeah, I don't think so, it's actually clickbait. Like in the in the general sense of we're just going to put this 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 crazy headline out to get clicks because this would be damages. This was this would definitely be something where they'd be responsible for damages if they found out that these were completely made up. If they didn't vet these um, people that they interviewed. They would be held liable, and well, they're not going to put their, themselves on that position. I don't think. Well, you know, but the, the the thing is, is that you know, it depends on the, who's paying for the hit piece to run or something. I'm not. It, so there, there's like three things here, which is that like there's one good thing, which is that um, you know, for for real reels, um, in the past, these kind of discussions, you know, like as far as like, hey. Fucking sexual, you know, the fucking the, the sexual assault thing or the sexual misconduct. More often than not, the other party would be told to shut the fuck up and stop rocking the boat because it's just awkward to deal with. And I mean, like you know, it'd be nice. It'd be nice if that was like legit. Hey, you know, I'm not saying you know we don't we ain't gonna fucking we ain't gonna fucking like tar and feather somebody, but okay, let's actually like deal with this as an actual like that there 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 has some something has gone wrong. And it needs to be dealt with, and it's a consist. That's a consistent response, if if something has happened. Um, you know, you also effectively have Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is a more personable version of uh, Richard Dawkins, as far as saying you are all idiots for believing the things that you do. <laughs> um, but yeah, and now we have these. Now we have these freaking. You know, because the. Mainstream news has effectively converted itself completely into entertainment. I mean, like you know, like the any like any real stuff. I mean, like even that the freaking New York Times is schizophrenic. You know, like we talk about people have this idea that fair and balanced means that you talk about both sides of an issue, and sometimes there's not another side of an issue. It's these are facts. <laughs> Just you don't need to. You don't. There are not. There are not. Yeah. Despite despite the proclamation, there are not, there really isn't such a thing as alternative facts. No, there's you not. Either there's had, facts, you either had a misrepresentation. It's facts or it's it's false. It's kind of the basis of how we make every decision. Um, and I definitely agree that I don't know. As far as news in general, the word news has, in my opinion, become kind of a dirty word. Um, it's very muddled. Yeah, well, uh, I feel weird typing it into a search engine. Yeah, I feel weird typing news into a search engine. I feel like I'm going to get garbage. I feel like I'm inviting a f- like just this uh-huh. river of shit to just flow into my my life and my brain. It, and they're always it's I, I feel like I feel depressed as soon as I start reading the news. You know, I, fortunately, I have a. a a phone with the Google Assistant on it, which a lot of people don't want to send their data to Google. I opted in. But what it does is it customizes my news feed to stuff that I'm interested in. And not all news is bad news, right? right? So it figures out that I like technology and it's sending me all the information on the latest Mac and Microsoft stuff. And I think that that's great because those are just reviews. It's like a technical review. It's like, oh, hey, this comes with this speed processor and this much memory, and this is what the consumer reviews are on. It's just facts. I, I don't feel like mo- I feel like most news articles don't focus on the facts. They're sen- they're written sensationally. They're written to to give you the worst the worst possible articles, and nobody can can cannot stare at a, a car crash. Well, they're, yeah, they're preying upon your 
most basic of like feelings, right? They're they're preying upon your feelings. They you know they know that that is something that triggers most people, and whether it's a positive or a negative trigger, people are going to pursue it, right? They're going to seek it out to for that to, to to feel, if you will. And they're good conversation points, right? I mean, I mean, when you when you read about something crazy bad that happened. You can bring up the topic with anybody, and, and you know that it's it's going to buy you a few minutes of conversation. But I, I wonder how much we're all learning as, as a result of these conversations. You know, if it's really just a bunch of, like, regurgitated hearsay, and we don't actually learn anything from these conversations. And it, what's even crazier is I feel sad. Like, I actually feel sick and sad after doing it. And it's not just the news. Um, Facebook seems to have taken over for uh, the majority of people's news feed. And what's weird is the articles aren't being paid to show up on my wall. They're being shared. Yeah. It's like it's like friends of friends are sharing, and they're sharing because it's making them upset. Usually they're polarizing issues. They're sharing them because they're making them upset. And, you know, like a car crash, I stop and I start reading the comments. You know, somebody shares something that's good about Trump or somebody shares something that's bad about Trump. I read the comments and man, it's like a fucking civil war is happening in the comments of these things. And I can't help but read them. I've learned over the years to stay the hell out of them, but I can't help but read them. And it makes me feel sick. It's not news. No, it's it's essentially a social grenade. It's like pull the pin, throw the fucking thing and walk away and watch the fucking melee and chaos that ensues afterwards with it being completely divisive and people take sides and get all bent and they don't give a fuck about the facts. They just like, they just have an opinion and they just have to, you know, their opinion's right or whatever. It's like being the world's biggest Yankees fan and your entire (laughs) news feed is just fed with like Boston shit. And you're like, you see people talk about how Boston is so great, and you're like, no, Yank- the Yankees are better. And you just wake up every day, and you just get stressed out about these arguments. Except it's so much more impacting. I mean, if if your sports team doesn't win, it doesn't really change much in your life. But when some of our core values as a society are being challenged by politicians, it's people get really, really, really upset about it. And I don't like reading that every day. And I hate it because the issues need to be addressed. But I don't know if they need to be addressed in such a, a polarizing manner. And I don't think it needs to, to break out in a fight every time. You know my and stance on it. it if there are issues... Address them to someone's face, not to a fucking screen and a keyboard. Because if it's a real issue, you should be able to talk to like a real person. Because that's the only way you're going to find some sort of common ground. The other thing that's interesting is with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, there's a lot of really good points sometimes. And they're just buried in the comments of an article. Like, you could have somebody that's a... You know, just a regular Joe, and he he reads an article, and he can make a really really good point on it, and nobody's nobody's going to read it unless they scroll to, through 360 comments underneath that article. So that's weird too. Not only not only should he say it in public, but he kind of is, and nobody's ever going to hear him, right? Unless you're lucky, and that USA Today reporter just happens to quote his Twitter comment, which does happen. Yeah. <clears throat> Absolutely. <coughs> so uh, we got a lot of topics to cover today. You want to jump into the next one here? <clears throat> yeah, let's jump in. So uh, Microsoft released its uh, 
Is it, uh, would there be the yearly financials that they're releasing now? Yeah, I think their quarter end is is <clears throat> what they call it. But yeah, um, so the quarter end, and it's they uh, they have us- usurped. Uh, Apple. What's Lizard. that? Lizard. Yeah, lizard. Usurped. Or whatever. Fuck the word. It's too early. This morning. I think he's trying to make a snake joke. Yeah, <laughs> he was. Now it's now I know it's way too early. I'm not getting Gunner's jokes yet. Um, they have dethroned Apple as the most essentially the most profitable company. Their profits exceeded Apple's by four billion this past quarter, and um, that's pretty crazy. And there, I read an article on it uh, from the New York Times, and they said a lot of their they learned a lot of lessons with the cell phone failure, essentially. Um, but they were getting into trends that maybe at the time um, the world wasn't ready for yet. <clears throat> but now that that the world is essentially moved in that direction so quickly, it's passed some people by a bit, and they're not maybe as adept at at. Uh, Providing some of those services. So I love this news. I absolutely love this news. I am not a Microsoft fanboy, by the way, although I use tons of Microsoft products because, number one, some of their products, they're the only ones on the market, and some of their products are the best on the market. You know, Some of them have been the best on the market since they first came out. It's really, you can't really dispute the fact that Microsoft Word is the best word processor on the planet. Some people love it. Some people hate it, but it's the most popular. And it is a true WYSIWYG editor. I think that Microsoft should be able to, they almost should be able to patent the the term WYSIWYG. And for people who don't know what WYSIWYG means, it's an acronym for what you see is what you get. And what that means is when when you're typing something up in Word and you click the print button, it comes out exactly the way it looked, right? This concept was really born, um, uh, in the eighties and in the nineties and nobody was doing it properly. You could represent it on the screen, but when it came out on the printer, it always looked a little bit different. Now, if you go back far enough, in the in the 70s and 80s, word processors were actually extremely difficult to use. Have you ever used any of these, Gunner? Yeah, no, I mean, and, and, and I, I, I want to attach a caveat to that, because that's effectively how Adobe got started, was that, you know, like, between the, and again, it was the Macintosh, but they, with PostScript, effectively... The print, the, the the text and the layout that you saw on screen on your Macintosh was the same that came out on the equivalent printer, and why it was that was why that whole like desktop publishing thing finally fucking took off was that they had they you know there's still bug you know there's still irritating shit that goes on to this day, but it was like that was the first here you go. I mean, you gotta buy a six thousand dollar computer system to, to do it, but. But do you remember what it was like before oh, that? Oh, yeah. No, I, as, a pers- as a person who used to write papers on a Commodore 64 yeah. or, 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 you know, the the old school. Like, a, a, I've used a CPM text editor, which is, I mean, like, you know, like, Vi and everything else, like, it, is an old friend. And, and I don't want to talk like dinosaurs because it's it's ancient history at this point. But I want, there, were, there was actually a market for something called the word processor. Yeah, we had one. I kind of remember one? it. Oh, actually, we had, we, 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 we had a we had a we had a Smith Corona, like the actual like the like before before there was computers. Like here's a, here's a dedicated. It wasn't even an electric typewriter, and the word processors were beautiful. Um, but you needed to know a lot to use them. 
So um, I owned one. I actually got one because the teachers were starting to prefer that your uh, essays were typed <clears throat> as as. You know, I graduated in late, we all graduated in the late 90s, and the teachers were starting to prefer that everything was typed. But unless you went into the school and used their computer equipment, you'd need a two, three, four thousand dollar computer at home in order to use a word processor. Plus, you need to pay licensing on whatever software you're using to write your report. And I found on, at that time, it was, uh, uh, what we call the swap sheet around here, but it's like a local, is swap sheet's not national, is it? I don't think no. so, but it's I think regional, everyone's right? got a I mean, version like that, of it, right? That, that's that was again. That's what made Craigslist so fucking yeah. Crazy. It's a regional Craigslist. And it was be, this was well before Craigslist, and um and I found on there I think it was sixty bucks a word processor. And I'm like, well, now I can type my my, my essays. And, <laughs> oh, you were wrong. <laughs> yeah, and, and and it came with a it came with a with a small brochure and uh, or a uh, you know uh, like a help guide like a like a like a cheat sheet I guess you could call it and and that cheat sheet was needed so if you just wanted to type you just started typing if you wanted to backspace you backspace and if you needed to go up and edit an area you could use the arrow keys very very basic word processor however where it started getting really strange is if you wanted to make text bold or you wanted to make title uh, um, like a like a much like a heading or something like that on a report in order to do that you needed the cheat sheet and with the cheat sheet, what you do is you'd go right before the title and you'd use these keystrokes. And fortunately, the keyboard had like some of the cheat sheets right on them. And you'd use a shortcut key and then all of a sudden your title became a title. And it was a very, very nice way to produce what looked like you were using a modern-day word processor, but you were really using one of the first word processors and they were very nice. Well, Microsoft Word got it so that you not only saw what the title was going to look like, so you knew how much it bumped the rest of the text down off of the page and stuff like that, but you could actually start to do these crazy things like insert graphics inside. And, you know, even though the printers back then were dot matrix, they could they could print at least a black and white version of those graphics. And Microsoft really deserves, I, I feel, they deserve all of the credit and the money that they've received off of the Word product because it is a good product. So, but back to this news, it really wasn't that sweet. That's what most people know Microsoft by, but it really wasn't that office suite in the, in the Microsoft desktop that's made them profitable in the last few years. So most people have Windows 10 at this point. People that don't and have Macs, they don't even want to hear Windows, right? It's like nails on a chalkboard. They're like, why are we talking about this? <clears throat> and there's some Linux people out there too that don't want to hear either. But... Windows 10 was predominantly given away for free. So if you think about Microsoft's previous marketing campaign with their desktop, right, with Windows 95, which was a huge launch in the mid-90s, and then 98, and then uh, Millennium, and, and then the industry was starting to pick up NT, and Windows 2000, and then all of a sudden, uh, Windows Millennium, Windows 2000, had this weird bastard child, and it was called Windows XP. Windows XP was huge because it allowed the old Millennium DOS-style programs to run in an emulation mode, but it used that, that rock-solid technology that the industry was using from NT and, and Windows 2000, and XP was born. And I still believe XP is one of the best desktop operating I systems ever XP. released. I loved it. It's terrific. And I'm not a Microsoft fanboy. 
a beautiful, beautiful desktop operating system. Good backwards compatibility, um, fast. I mean, I still, I still run it, even though it's not supported anymore. Um, I still run a copy of XP, uh, like I run it in like a virtual machine, and it boots in like in like three seconds. It is it's such a lightweight operating system. It's a good OS. Gunner, you're looking at me. I just, I'm, I'm not actually sure if they have an equivalent in the, uh, the newer ones, but. XP also did some fun stuff, like they had what they call boot once or zoom many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was... Wake once or zoom many. Worm. Well, yeah. You taught me that phrase, Gunner, like 10 years ago. And I've been calling it worm ever since. Worm. Yeah, which and that's what they're using now with Windows 10, right? Windows 10 never actually shuts down. Yeah. It goes to sleep. So yeah, there's some concepts, right, that they invented back then that they're still using. Uh but that was in the desktop wars, right? And it was interesting because there really wasn't any competition. Microsoft, but Microsoft could continue to sell Windows and people were compelled to pay money for it. And it was worth it. Yeah. Windows XP was worth the price. Well, you fast forward, you know, um, Vista was a flop. Uh, seven was good. And we were all pretty much forced to get off of seven, right? I mean, it's kind of safe to say. Um, eight did come out. Eight was a flop. And what they forced us to go to from 7 was really Windows 10. And they oh. really forced us by eight, nagging us every goddamn eight, day. Well, actually, and, 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 and truth be told, is 8 one's actually, 8-1 eight, eight was, I hate that phone. Again, because this is also, like, Microsoft is their own fucking worst enemy. And the phone, I think the phone company, the phone division would have been massively successful if they didn't stick Microsoft branding on it. Like the, the the actual like the actual OS concept itself, you know, like the user interface, everything like that was not. Yeah, and, and I mean that's a nice sidebar. Bad. If you look at Apple, Apple's constantly being asked, "Hey, when are you going to merge the iPad with the Mac desktop?" And Apple says, "Never." There's, they're not the same. And what's interesting is watching the people who've tried and failed, right? Um, in the Linux world, which not too many people are, are familiar with, uh, GNOME has tried to do it, the GNOME desktop. And the GNOME desktop is very popular. It ships with, it ships with uh, you know, a, a spinoff of, of Red Hat called Fedora. It ships with uh, the most popular Linux distribution, um, Ubuntu. And there's a modified version of GNOME that ships with Linux Mint, which is very popular. GNOME's huge. But GNOME made the same thing. They said, you know what? Let's get rid of the minimize button and the maximize button. And, you know, you don't have them on the phone. Why would you need them on the desktop? And those fucking asshats to this day still haven't brought them back. Oh, God. The only way to get them back is to run something like Mint or Ubuntu, who yeah. actually programmatically brought them back. Actually, it's technically through a preference of the desktop. But a, a vanilla install of Fedora, Fedora being an extremely popular Linux uh, distribution, yeah. extremely popular in the in the 1% of the marketplace that it exists in, uh, Fedora still doesn't have a maximize button. It still doesn't have a minimize button. Window management has been thrown away. And GNOME being one of the most popular desktops just decided on their own that that was okay. But in, in my, from, my, from what I've observed, it seems like that was driven by the idea, hey, you can run GNOME on a phone. And Ubuntu actually did the same thing. They have, when those netbooks were popular, remember those really, really, really tiny netbooks you could barely get all your hands on mm -hmm. the keyboard yeah. because the keyboards were so small? Well, they decided to make some real estate changes with, the, with their desktop um, because of those little tiny netbooks. And if you ever use those netbooks, like even with Windows, you you like try changing the screen dimensions. Yeah. The properties dialog for your monitor is larger than the entire screen. Yeah, it, it, it's, it, we actually have... Um, a bunch of commercial apps at work that um, 
You can't well, click OK. And, and, well, yeah, until until we basically went through a new hardware cycle and throughout the previous laptops, the interfaces broke on them because we were buying panels that were so, even even though they were full desktop, we were buying ones with panels that were so small that no one was writing software that would actually like scale properly. So what Ubuntu that. did is they said, you know what, let's get the bar that was on the bottom of the screen and let's move it over to the left. That way, you have the full top and the full bottom of the screen, and those extra pixels will be just enough for you to click the OK button. So they redesigned their desktop as well for, for these new devices, and, and some of them seemed like they were also around the Ubuntu phone, which never <coughs> took off. So all of these weird decisions are happening. Gunnar mentioned Win, uh, uh, Windows 8, which was largely modeled after the uh, the Windows phone, right, where everything was a tile. So actually, yeah, I, I, I never... I don't have any experience with the Windows Phone, so like, take me on a, like a little spin of what you know, just what it was like and why it was a failure. You, th- you think? And well, I mean, other than the fact that my, you know, it, 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 two things, which is one, it didn't up until the very end of its lifespan. Um, it required a completely separate software ecosystem. That and was probably that its was, biggest failure. You know, like at the at the end, it, it actually could, it could it actually at the end it could start running uh, uh, Android apps. Right, you couldn't run oh, any Jesus apps. Jesus Christ! Yeah, the lack of an app store it actually will kill any new phone. Yeah. operating system because I mean, you need that 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 millions of apps for Android and iOS. Oh, so it couldn't run any of the like so if like let's say I, I had a, a Microsoft well, phone. You'd, you'd, you'd have to yeah you'd have to build a version of. Uh, Angry Birds specifically for it. Right, or, you know, right. Like that's the best media. example. Is there, yeah, Angry Birds needed to make their own version of it, and it cost them money and nobody was using it. But even crazier, um, and people probably don't truly understand this, but the phone does not run your classic Intel processor. You can't run the desktop apps. Right, so you got a phone that quote unquote runs Windows, but it can't actually run anything designed for Windows. And, and it, well, and you know, and this it, is a huge problem in well, the market. It's funny that you say that because it's it's effectively when they once they've you know like I'm gonna it's gonna be interesting to see if they jump back into it. The last version of Windows 10, they did actually get it fully ported over to ARM, so. Um, I mean, like you know, like there, there's been there's been well, a, the oh, there's been tablets, her- but they're like, they're th- once they abandoned that strategy, they finally got the tech in the background to be like, we can run the same, but we can run because I, they're in the process of kind of deprecating Win32, but the new the, the new packages will run on both architectures. It's the same the same binary will run on right right both right. But the interesting thing to remember about ARM, so ARM is. Uh, Stands for the Advanced Risk Microprocessor, right? I got that right. Or um, actually, Acorn Risk Machine. Okay, Acorn, whatever. Risk being reduced instruction set computing. Yes. Right. So, what happened was uh, this whole concept of cell phones running ARM, right? ARM being the processor, right? There was a Risk microprocessor. The Risk microprocessor took some of the 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 classic instruction sets out, and they could do essentially do more with less. Yes, ARM got that, took it to the next level, and because of that, the mobile devices could use less electricity but still do the same type of computational tasks that the desktop was using. The problem is, is that the desktop was still using this this <coughs> architecture that was that was really stemmed from Intel, right? People see. Uh, uh, 386 
it really was the Intel 8086 that started this, right? And then and the modern computer is really based off, uh, off of a 64-bit version of that called AMD 64, yeah. right? Which is, a, which is the 8086 uh, architecture, but brought up to support 64-bit instructions. Why 64? More memory really is it. More memory is important because on 32-bit, you actually max out at four, 4 gigs of RAM. And anybody that's bought a computer these days, you realize that 4 gigs of RAM is not enough. So 64-bit, we needed to go there. We, we kept the 8086, though, because all those old 32-bit apps needed to keep running because the industry couldn't just go and recompile everything. For example, you bought Microsoft Office 97, right? Beautiful application. It came with Excel, Word, PowerPoint. That still runs today on Windows 10, right? That means Windows 10 is still capable of running those 32-bit uh, instructions. Now, when when the when the the when the processors were fighting over each other for 64-bit, Intel came out with one called Intel Architecture 64. But the lack of backwards compatibility meant that nobody wanted it. So IA64 died, and Intel actually adopted AMD's 64-bit architecture. Now, switch over to ARM. ARM is completely different, right? Intel couldn't get their 64 working with their 32. It's very difficult to get an ARM working with Intel architecture. By the way, is it Qualcomm? Well, there's a couple. There's is Qual it Qualcomm or Broadcom? Which one? They actually got the 32-bit instruction set inside the uh, ARM processor. We'll have to we'll have to look that one up. I'm thinking this Qualcomm is mostly. It's a little Qualcomm. late because it's, it's only the 32-bit. They need to add the 64-bit Intel as well. But there there actually are ways to run some of these programs on ARM. But they're 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 new. They haven't been rolled out to the masses. And just because it can run the instruction set doesn't mean you would want to run a Windows desktop application on a phone, right? I mean, it's designed for a mouse. You know, your your finger is not going to be able to touch all these little tiny buttons. So. ARM ends up being an, a completely different architectural uh, difference. But what's happened as a result of that is ARM made itself from the cell phones back into the desktops, and this is where it gets weird. Chromebooks are predominantly ARM. So if you go, if you go and you buy a Chromebook, you have no idea if the processor inside it is Intel or ARM. Now, when this gets interesting is that... Uh, Microsoft strategically has to say, hey, if ARM is starting to take over the desktop industry, we better get off of our asses and offer an ARM version. So by now, most people have heard of the Raspberry Pi, mm -hmm. which is like a, it's like a little $30 micro PC that you can hack at. It's for like, like hobbyists, DIYers. Yeah, like uh, DIY, like home development, like homebrew developed stuff. Yeah, some people run them as little media centers, and they have their music and their videos on there. Um, some people run them to emulate uh, video games, so they can put their Nintendo games on there and stuff like that. But um, it started off as a what was the what was the backstory on the Pi, Gunner? So actually, the ba the backstory on the Pi is effectively um, it is a repackaged Roku motherboard. Did you say Roku? Uh, yeah, no, it's it, actually that 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 chip mm -hmm. that chip was originally de developed by Broadcom. Right, yeah, for and it was Roku. a Broadcom developer, right? Yes. He got permission from Broadcom yes. to start like creating his own board. Yep. But but yes, that that the origin the Raspberry Pi one, that five hundred and twelve megabit one, but that that is actually that is a that is a cost optimized version 
of the same circuit that's in that the the the, the Roku. And, and interesting things, right? So I went out and bought myself one. It's like you know twenty nine thirty bucks. I was part of the, the the original campaign where they were back ordered. They they couldn't fill all the supply. And uh, I remember getting it, and I wanted to do something. I wanted to get. I have the 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 digital antenna on in my house, and I wanted to be able to play the live TV through it. The Live TV was using an encoding. I think it was MP2. I don't know if Gunnar knows more about encoding than I do. I think it was MP2. The Pi's video card, in order to make it cheap enough, they didn't pay licensing on that codec. So I actually had to go out to Raspberry Pi, pay them, I think it was $2.50. And then I got the, the license. And it just I think I just put a file on the computer. Like it wasn't anything complex. I had to install a driver or anything. And once that file was there, it unlocked that capability in the video card, and that's because the the uh, the MP2 encoding it was is still a licensed technology, and it would have cost the Pi two more dollars, and it would have pushed their price point up mm. closer to forty or thirty five or whatever the you know wherever they were floating towards. They took that two dollars and fifty cents out just so they can make it cheaper to the consumer, and then they figured you know in the edge case some some guy wants to try playing these videos on it. The video card can do it. Now, I could have done it using software rendering, but it was it was flickering and it was slow. To unlock the capabilities on the hardware, I had to pay that two bucks. But so it's, it's interesting to see um, to see that that licensing component get stripped out just to make the pie on the right uh, the right price point. But so in the long story I'm trying to get here is is that the Raspberry Pi took off. Right, it took off as a hobbyist device. It was ARM based. It used a technology, I believe. It used a system on a chip, right? Yeah, no, that that's the technology. That's the technology. Yes. Yeah. Explain a little bit why system on a chip is revolutionary when it comes to modern day computing. Well, again, the the you know we've always been following the path of integration. So you have you know as miniaturization goes, like because you know even like the, the old Intel chips, the the, the, the Pentium twos and stuff, you had the cache outside the actual CPU, so you'd actually have memory chips. To, that that was why it had like the video game cartridge was because they couldn't fit stuff on the same die. Um, but where system on a chip comes in is that we've gotten to a point that so yeah I. Focus thoughts get to point. So there, there's two. There's two. There's two competing. There's two competing things when you make a computer, which is that you want to squeeze the maximum number of circuits that you can into like the square millimeter, mm-hmm. because you have like heat and density issues and stuff like that. But it's also just like an efficiency thing, because if you have really fast, you know, if it's if the RAM's really close to it, even if you have less of it, if it can switch in and out real fast then you can get away with using less of it but it's also that you you only can you know like you there's a like a, there's kind of like a it's not a bell curve but effectively you know like you have the the, the, the crazy i'm trying to think what the heck the, the, the name of that that graph is where you have the two you have the two uh counter trending lines where one's going up one is i'm doing a visual i'm doing a visual indication on a podcast <laughs> um but you want so you want to, you want to pack as much stuff onto the chip as you can, but you also want to keep the die size smaller because as you go down, you have issues where the defect rate on the chips go up. So you know, like it, it, it's it's you know, it's like kind of why Intel has so many freaking crap. You know, like it has sixteen versions 
of what effectively is the same CPU because you have different parts of it that just rot out when they make it and they just cut them off. But where system on a chip comes in is that it's a way of, okay, before where we'd have to design a motherboard where we'd have RAM and USB peripherals and all this other stuff, like, you know, like you'd have all this real estate. It's why phones went from, it's why like you have an iPhone that's how many inches wide and like maybe a third, you know, like a millimeter, a couple, you know, like 10, 15 millimeters thick. And it's because you can pack, you know, like we got into a point where like the, 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 the efficiency is you can package all that stuff on a single chip. Right. So really where it gets, starts getting into the fun stuff is like, okay, how do I get all the leads out to talk to the outside world versus... But even the video card, right? Yeah. It's yeah. like the processor, which if people think about old computers, it had the big heat sink on it with the fan, and the fan would just blow all that crazy heat off of it. And then the video card would be a separate chip, and it would usually be on the board, but then for people who gamed, it would be like you'd actually have to clip it in, and that yeah. would have its own heat sink, you know... Um, and then another fan, and it would be cranking out tons of heat. Somehow they layered the processor, the uh, the video card, and then like I think you said the cache, yeah. right? All on top, and all of those other, all the other little resistors and chips and all of those things weren't even needed anymore. Well, and and, and where where it gets again, like especially especially now, and where the phone stuff comes in, because um, I uh, there's a there's a company called uh, Odroid. Which their big thing is that Samsung makes Raspberry Pi style boards of all their like flagship phones, mm-hmm. so you can get like a a octa core, like t- little, little tiny motherboard. It's got SATA on it, all that stuff. But yeah, you know, like a Raspberry Pi sized right. portable computer. Really, a Raspberry Pi uh, competitor at that point, right? Well, I mean, you know, you know, the price point aside, but. It, but what it gets into is that um, you so you have you have multiple CPUs you have that but you also have the radio and that's really where the that's really you know like that was if anything that's effectively what changed the whole game per se because like you know we you have embedded systems you have Raspberry Pi when you say radio you talking Bluetooth and wireless no I, I'm talking Bluetooth wireless and the modem so like the actual the one that's talking the 4G like you, where, where your portable devices come in oh is that because yeah. they're, 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 that's a very hard engineering problem mm-hmm. because having something that's running at multiple gigahertz in the same in the same chip package is something that's sure so so th- thank you for explaining the system on a chip. Sure. And, and we see that in our everyday lives with stuff like a uh, fire stick, right? It's it's a little tiny arm chip mm-hmm. and <coughs> excuse me, and it runs a full-blown um, version of some type of operating system. That's good. Um, it's Roku has it's a stick. It's Linux. Um, um, and there's a, there's a couple other that, that, that escape my mind. And, and Intel has actually responded with a system on a chip as well. And it's called the Atom processor, right? Yeah, well, they rebranded it eighteen. It. They rebranded it eighteen million times. So yes, they, well, actually, they had. So Adam. So actually, Intel has three products mm-hmm. that kind of like they because they, again they segment shit like. So they have what they called, you know, and they keep they keep pulling the plug on stuff. So they have they have the Atom, which I think has been rebranded into the Pentium something. But this was, this is this is. Kind of weird because effectively what it is is a process improved and clock super clock speed boosted version of the original Pentium core. Right. 
Um, <clears throat> but it can they, run the 32, the 64. Well, well yes. And actually, now um, now that they, they've kind of discontinued that, so now it's a Skylake, but it's it's this process-optimized one. So, But they had what they called the Edison, which is the Raspberry Pi competitor. And the Raspberry, that was actually like a, a 700 megahertz quad-core Pentium chip that like pulled something it was like I think like 500 million you know like again like yeah. you could run it off a USB you know this yeah, is you, a full PC that you it's could a run shitty off. phone charger is all the power you need yeah um so so what, what Microsoft did is um they saw this huge uptick in developers jumping on the Raspberry Pi market the ARM market and they said we're gonna lose this game if we don't offer Windows for the Raspberry Pi. And they did. And they had a full-blown development kit, and you could run a version of Windows on the Raspberry Pi, but they needed to have Windows running reliably on a really, really lightweight ARM device. And Microsoft did. They came to market with that. Actually, Gunnar and I were looking into some of the 3D printers. In order to get some of them to print through Microsoft Windows 10, you actually needed to get a Raspberry Pi, load it with the this lightweight version of Windows, and then that Raspberry Pi ended up doing some of the, the 3D printing computation for you. So Microsoft has really started to get on board with with this like uh, this DIY kind of uh, like shoestring startup weird development type stuff that they never really were in before. It was always dominated by the Linux fanboys and the hobbyists. What's what's even weirder is that effectively, like the pie was never the pie was never meant to be like a standard, but. You know, it's it's kind of just you know it's 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 the open SSL open SSH thing where somebody made here's the cheapest baseline implementation that addresses every single one of your needs. It's like okay, I guess we're gonna go buy that, right? Because like you you know like one of the issues that we had with the QZ thing was that yeah, it's great that it needs a Raspberry Pi to do this. Like we want to do the standard, but like they're doing it. Like even even the commercial like the 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 normal kits they're putting touch screens on these printers to do UIs but they're sticking raspberry pis right as the intermediary on the mm-hmm. printer so that again it's like you know like it's kind of after the fact but yeah like that windows 10 thing is actually becoming a, a more relevant again now because they're they're sticking that hardware in and it makes sense right i mean developers want the power of a pc but they don't want to get a huge PC and jam it with every product that they sell. If you have a few inches of extra real estate inside a component and you have, like you said, like like a 500 milliamps, which you could charge a cell phone with worth of extra power, you can put a full-blown computer inside a component like a printer yep. and really improve the experience. So Microsoft realized that there was a demand and they jumped into this hobbyist market and it was really weird and a lot of people were felt very uncomfortable when they saw it. But what happened, what happened, what was really happening was the CEO of Microsoft was starting to strategically place the company in a market that he knew everything was going to and it was completely against the grain of Microsoft. You go back to the days of Ballmer, right? Steve Ballmer getting up, and he was the the bigger guy that was almost shouted at them. When developers, developers, well, develop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say say that. What developers develop? Yes, he's. It's it's the Howard Dean scream that ended the ended the presidency. But yes, and what it's did just, he say say about Linux? Do you remember? He made a public statement. 
Ballmer made a public statement about Linux. I believe he was the CEO that sued Linux for copyright infringement, oh, wow. right? Yeah. And now they're existing in the same space. So, um, and I know we spent a long time on this topic, well, but uh, fast forward to today. These are the weird things that Microsoft has done over the years. People say Tiger can't change its stripes. I don't know. Corporations are corporations, and they can change based on a leader, based on culture. These are some of the things that they've done. So most people that have Windows 10 keep getting Microsoft Edge jammed down their throat, and you're like, sorry, I don't want to use you. And then you open Chrome, it's like, you should try Edge. It's better. And you're like, no, get out of here, Edge. Well, Microsoft Edge was their solution to getting the hell away from Internet Explorer. Internet Explorer has tons of security problems, ones which we could spend an entire episode on, uh, mostly due to some, some security decisions that they made uh, in the late 90s that have, for backwards compatibility reasons, still work uh, in, in, in Internet Explorer that ships with Windows 10. But Edge was their way of saying, hey, we're going to fix this. They were, it, it was originally called, what did they call it? What was their original name Bing? for it? No. Things no. their search engine. There's a search engine. I mean, there's bad. Cortana, which was the search service. I'm not sure what the br- the browser. I'm not sure what the heck. I, I thought it was just Edge. Uh, Triton? Maybe. Well, I mean, it's all history it, now, but it, it, Edge it, is the blue E that ships with Windows 10 now, and it looks like Internet Explorer's icon, but it is not. The E for Internet Explorer was for Explorer, for the E in Explorer. The E in. Edge is obviously for the E and Edge, but they kept a blue color and they put it right down in the bar where the old E was. So if you went from uh, if you went from Windows 7 to Windows 10, it looks like Internet Explorer was the same place it always was, but a completely different program opened. Well, the heart of Edge is a browser engine. Now, browser engines, again, we could probably have a full topic on. However, if you look at the history of browsers... Most of the browsers today are actually the same engine. Now, this is an interesting fact. Firefox is its own. <clears throat> Firefox uses one that's called Gecko. But Safari, Chrome, Opera, <clears throat> and then most of the mobile browsers, which is usually Chrome or Safari, but there's some other spinoffs, they all run the exact, well, what started as the same browser engine. The history behind that engine is a bit complex, but the short of it is, Apple used that engine for Safari, and everybody else took it from Apple. So the browser engines are are all the same, but the important aspect about it is those browser engines are open source. So if there's a bug, you can go in and fix it. If there's a security problem, you can go in and fix it. Huge, huge difference from Internet Explorer where it's closed source and you can't fix it. Well, Microsoft, for some reason, decided when they wrote Edge, they were going to open source the browser engine, something that they had never done before, and it seemed weird. But that was, that's just one tiny slice of the pie. Another thing that they did is they decided that their desktop scripting engine, right, um, they call it PowerShell, they decided they were going to open source that too. So now a whole bunch of, of enterprise tools that you would use PowerShell for, you can now run on Mac and you can now run on Linux. And it's smart because the people that write those tools don't want to be locked to Microsoft. They just happened to write it for Microsoft because that's where the industry was. Well, you know, and part and parcel of that is this goes back. This goes back to the fundamental change in strategy that Microsoft has had in the yes. last five, ten years, which is that instead of we're you know, instead of pushing a server OS or a desktop OS per se, 
They want you involved in their they they want you involved in their compute services, and they don't care if you're running you know like you know anything that get anything that gets you running on on one of their service providers. They don't care if it's running Linux in the background. I mean, like you know, they want to they want that's that that goes back to that developer thing. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, and it's it's where Windows eight failed was that they tried to use the phone UI to do things and really what they you know like what they kind of have come back to and I have I have hang-ups on the whole option of just you can only use it as a provider I would like to be able to hold my data and stuff locally and do all this stuff and I know like I got I gotta do legwork and I, I don't hold that against them but it's this idea that it's not the UI that makes something mobile it's how it actually executes so it's this idea of I'm not doing you know like just because just because I'm interacting with data locally doesn't mean that any of the compute that that goes on in the background, i.e. like what actually you know is just because I have the 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 interface in front of me, I don't actually need the computer doing that work locally. It can do it out in the cloud, and that's where the you're doing PowerShell on Linux and Mac and all that stuff is that. You know, like I may have an application that's running across three or four different architectures and three or four different OSs. And if as long as I can make that like an interface, you know, like as long as I can do a scripting interface so that it does all that stuff in the background consistently, then they're going to get in the Microsoft ecosystem. And yeah, in the Microsoft ecosystem is really what we're starting to to, to talk about here. So um, like one of the we talk about the scripting, right? <clears throat> um, let's say I'm a company. And, and I do stuff, but it's usually back-end stuff, and it's a bunch of IT guys doing it. But I want them to be able to script with PowerShell. Because of some, some strategic changes from Microsoft, it no longer needs to run on a Windows machine. However, how does Microsoft make money when they're giving it away for free for all these, for all these desktops? Well, the way they make money, it's like you're talking about the ecosystem. In order for a company to offer this whole th scripting thing, usually they go to Microsoft for a developer license. And those developer licenses are expensive. They're 1500 bucks a pop. If you got five developers that need it, it's far exceeded the amount that somebody would have spent on a copy of Microsoft Windows. And that company, by the way, did spend money on Microsoft Windows unless they took the free upgrade because believe it or not, corporations were allowed to do that too. Huh. So these corporations, when they switched from seven to 10, they were also taking that free upgrade pop-up just like the rest of us at home. So they're really, they're like, well, let's sell the development. Now, they've even gone crazier with this. Microsoft's development tools used to be fairly expensive and you could only buy them. They decided a few years ago, I think it was in 2015, although I could be wrong, it might have been before that, they said, we're going to offer our development tools and they're going to be part of this developer subscription. However, if you don't have the money for that, we'll give you a community version. Mm -hmm. Just going to be missing a few features. So they released, um, and, and again, they might have done this before 2015, but 2015 is the year I remember downloading for the first time, downloading their development tools for free. It's you can go to their website and you get to pick the paid version or the community version. And I'm like, well, I probably am licensed at work for the paid version, but I don't want to put in a product key and worry about licensing. Let me get the free version and see what I can do. And the free version did a lot for me. So what that did is it started getting people more comfortable with using Microsoft's development technologies, which will eventually end in more sales because as the corporate world needs support and they need those enhanced features, they're going to pay them the money. <clears throat> but at the same time, I guess, in a model of sustainability, 
um, offering them the free version could take away sales too. I wouldn't even say that. I would say, you know what? Maybe they maybe they're on the bubble as financials, right? They can't afford the 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 premium version. Maybe they need to grow their business and grow their services yes. before. And once they get there, okay, now you now you should be able to afford it. And I love this model. Um, we've talked about gaming before. Unreal Tournament has, or not Unreal Tournament. I'm sorry, the Unreal Engine, right? Which a lot of 3D games are built off of. Um, and by 3D games, just games, because most shooters are 3d yeah the unreal engine is something that is free unless you exceed three thousand dollars in revenue yeah. and then you got to pay them five percent of your revenue it's this whole idea that we want to support you as a startup we know that you can barely make your 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 light bill but once you can make your light bill give us five percent back and and it's working right it's allowing people with great ideas to create companies create products with almost no startup money without angel investors without venture capital and and they're able to come to market and then once they do okay i'll pay my bill right and i love it i love this concept and i love the fact that microsoft is embracing this so one thing that they did, and this is something that touches most IT professionals directly, is, um, and not the way Neil deGrasse Tyson would touch them. <laughs> I take it back. <laughs> um, they decided to make a really, really, really basic text editor. And when I say text editor, I don't mean word. I mean code, right? So if you're on Windows and let's say you're, you're like somebody asked you to help edit uh, their website, right? And you go to their website and you're like, oh gosh, it's HTML. And you bring that HTML down to your computer and you poke around. <laughs> it. Bless you. Um, in order to edit that HTML, all you really need is notepad, right? You just can stare at the greater thans and then the, yeah. the less thans and the ampersands and all these weird symbols. But what most people end up using is they use something called a code editor. And there's these huge monstrosities of code editors. And there's quite a few. Um, and there's some big leaders in the code editors. But there's also these little tiny utilities for just editing a few lines. Those little utilities for editing a few lines have really... They really exist in their own space. The most popular one that I can think of, and it's also my personal favorite, and it only runs on Windows. Although um, there is a Linux, uh, there is a Linux uh, fork of it. It's called Notepad Plus Plus. Notepad Plus Plus is just a text file editor. But what it does is, is it gets those HTML tags or whatever you're editing, and it, it, it does syn They call it syntax highlighting, but it, it color codes them. So that you know that the that the less than HTML greater than is just it's just a tag and the content's a different color. So when you're looking at it, you can quickly fix it. But it's even cooler than that. It starts like 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 warning you if you forgot to put like like one of those greater than signs in. It actually does very very rudimentary syntax checking for you, and these are really important for productivity. Well. It because the other thing is, is especially with Notepad Plus Plus, um, I wrote a, you know, like again, I did my macro. So like the other thing is, is that you can do editors for languages that aren't necessarily part of its defined templates. Like I have one for RPG, so that it will. But you're it, saying custom. Yeah. So but, uh, so like you know, because like, I, again, the the day job I do i series uh, stuff, you know, old green screen computer. But um, we didn't want to pay for the visual, you know, or the the the, the WebSphere development studio, 
and I finally got tired of trying to track down stuff on an 80 character tall screen. You just wrote one. So I just wrote one that basically finds the closing, you know, the ending and closing statements on logical loops and stuff like that. So it just if it if it's, it sees it's missing a tag, it'll be like, hey, I'm. And, and this is an important thing because this this is kind of where I'm going. Um, Notepad plus <clears throat> plus, I, I still I still believe it's the best. It handles some really strange edge cases and problems with files. I really think it's the best, but what it what it's done is it's created this 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 like kind of this uh, like barrier to entry. If you wanted to be also another text editor, and I know text editors are really for like the IT guys and the programmers, but people people have to edit a file at home anyway. And it, even though it's once in a while, sometimes you need a good tool for it. Back in the day, like Ultra Edit Thirty Two was one of these types of apps, but you know now Notepad Plus Plus rules the rules the Windows side. There really wasn't a good cross platform one, and this was a huge problem. So this commercial one called Sublime came out. Sublime is great. People that love it use it, and they're very productive with it. GitHub, right? GitHub being the place where most of these um, these 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 projects here. keep their code. GitHub actually released one called Atom. Atom is extremely popular. Yes, but in the midst of all of this, Microsoft decided to release one, and they released it for all platforms for for Windows, for uh, Linux, and for Mac. So what's happened is some of these programmers that said, I don't need Microsoft in my life. I do everything on Linux or I do everything on Mac. They actually have found a place to adopt a Microsoft app on Linux, which was just weird, right? It's weird that Microsoft even would have done it. And um, I've talked to people. I mean, my brother works for, uh, for Dell EMC, and he uses Linux predominantly. He uses Mac sometimes, and he uses... It's called Visual Studio Code, but he uses a Microsoft text editor for all of his work. So this, what I really wanted to explain was the culture shift, right? Microsoft went from being like this big empire that just sold like software and desktops, and now they're kind of embracing other platforms into their into their culture. Well, it, it, so it, much so that. And I can't remember the year. I think it was 2012 or 2013. Microsoft, actually, that year, Microsoft was the largest contributor to the Linux kernel that entire year. Something on the order of like 15,000 lines of code. Why would Microsoft write 15,000 lines of code and put them inside Linux? Well, um, a couple of things. If they're trying to get an interface to behave behave more consistently you know what type um, of interface well uh i mean it depends actually because it's not an application but if there is remember this is the kernel this is yeah. the core no but it, so i mean like you have you have your um I mean, like, other than virtualization update, virtualization improvements or That's something That's exactly like that. what it was for. So what it really comes down to is Microsoft wanted to offer Linux as a service. And now this is fucking crazy, right? Microsoft was famous for selling Windows. And now they want to actually be able to say, hey, we can give you Linux as a service. And this is really the birth of the cloud, right? where you don't actually have the machinery inside your building, but instead you're leasing it, and it's in the quote-unquote cloud, which really means it's a data center in a major city with a huge, huge chunk of bandwidth going in. 
And it was part of Microsoft building out something called Azure. In Azure, it was a cloud service offering where you could run Windows, you could run Linux, and you could run any of the applications that your companies needed in that cloud. The reason that the consumers don't really know why Microsoft is making so much money is because you don't have it in the palm of your hand. If somebody tells you, you know, Apple's now number two, although they'll probably edge Microsoft back, it'll be a back and forth thing. But if somebody tells you Apple's number one, everybody says, oh, sure, of course they are. I just spent 99 cents uh, to up my cloud storage uh, on my iPhone. Of course they're rich because I keep giving them money. Apple takes 30% off the top of every sale in the app store. So you pay $5 for an app, they're getting 30% of that. And they say that's because in a retail market, it's 30%, but they don't have to store stuff on shelves. They don't have to throw stuff away that's expired. That 30% is quite high, and it's making Apple a lot of money. How the hell did Microsoft edge up above Apple? And that's what I think is is. I think it's a beautiful company success story because they went from this evil empire to embracing other desktops, embracing other operating systems, embracing technology in the communities that are building that technology as startups, as as you know, as innovators and 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 whatever. And somehow they are able to edge up and above. And, and a lot of it is because they adopted this open. Um, this this crowdfunding, this crowdsourcing mentality into their culture, um, and now Azure is a huge profit center for them. What would you want in Azure? Well, the number I would say the number one thing that companies are switching is email. So it, let's say you work for corporate America and you go to work and you have your email. Most people go to work and they open up Outlook, right? Outlook being the email app, and you can send and receive emails, and you can do your out-of-office, and, and you can schedule meetings. Well, Outlook, the Outlook program runs on, on the computer, but it doesn't need to connect to a computer inside your company. What Microsoft realized was you actually have a higher availability of your email system if you don't trust those backwoods IT guys to keep the server running in your computer room. Hire Microsoft. They know more about sending and receiving emails because they wrote the software. It's called the product is called Microsoft Exchange. They wrote Microsoft Exchange. They wrote Microsoft Windows. Why not hire Microsoft to keep that server updated, to keep Exchange updated, to block spam from coming in? And and what you end up doing is when you look at your bills at the end of the year, you're paying Microsoft a fraction of the costs that it was to have a guy on staff managing a server they call it on-premise but inside your building the licensing is cheaper and you only pay for what you use and this is really where cloud comes from you know it's this concept that you don't need the computer sitting in the company now they weren't the first to this uh, market Amazon really was the first one. Well, Amazon to owns a vast majority of the cloud share they own over like 51.3 percent well, you know in Am Amazon's uh Tech is a little weird too compared it to is. to compared to and why go into detail as why it's a little weird and differentiates it from let's say Microsoft's. Tech. Um, do you mind if I? If you can, yeah, you know, if you want to, Microsoft is the iPhone of cloud. They did everything simple, and it just works. Amazon is like the, it's like the Windows Phone of the cloud. Stuff, 
you it, really have to know exactly it's, what it, you're it's, doing. It's, it's like it's like the Linux of the cloud. <laughs> yeah, it's really tricky. So, like, uh, if for example, if you want somebody to sign into your Amazon cloud, they have a service called I Am. I don't know why they call it I Am, but that's what they call it. And you have to know when you're reading all of their articles. You know, sign into the I am service. What is I am? I don't know what this is. And it's because they put a name over this product and the product is the security. Now, most people out there that manage Amazon are like, Trace, shut up. It's great. It's fast. It works really well. And it does. They were the first to market and they're responding to the market demands. So it, it, it is pretty easy to use. But to that point, with Microsoft, you pretty much click a button to say, I have an exchange server. And it fires it up. And, uh, and the security for Microsoft is handled. It's much. It's much simpler. It's using the standard Microsoft tools that people are used to using in the in the in the corporation. Amazon storage, which uh, you know, cloud is weird because cloud you have clouds. It, normally, in a computer, you have your processor, your memory, and then then how big your hard drive is, your storage. That's with a PC. Those are always those are always together. Cloud got weird because there's so much stuff like like your photos and in your videos and stuff like that that you want just storage for. That they in cloud they they split those up and storage is actually separate from the actual processor the the processing they call it compute. So compute and storage are kind of separate. Amazon has a section for storage and it's called uh, the simple storage solution. I believe they call it S three. So you got S three. You got I am. What's your compute stack called? Oh crud! Um, is it like Theta or something like that? And even their, even their, you know, the whole database sides of sides of things, they they have like two different product names for their database. So jumping into the Amazon ecosystem can be extremely daunting. Where Microsoft said, "No, you want a database? You use Microsoft SQL. That's what it's always been. You've been using that in the industry for years." They may they may have separated it from from an architectural standpoint, but from a consumer standpoint, they made it painfully simple. And what this means is, when you get rid of that exchange guy that was sitting in your in your in your corporate IT department, getting paid a hundred thousand dollars a year to make sure that that those emails were flowing right, and you say, hey, I'm sorry, but we don't need this role anymore. He became a cloud expert overnight by switching to Microsoft. So it's a no-brainer from a company perspective. So I really, truly believe Microsoft deserves to be, I know I, I took a, a really long time explaining this, but their cloud presence has been extremely strategically smart. And I've used Azure, and it, I, I feel it's a beautiful experience. Now, my brother works for Dell EMC, so he's, he's spent a lot of time on the Amazon side of the fence, and he really, really, really likes that side. It's well because again the difference is, is that um, Azure is optimized about you finding applications, putting applications together to make to to, to 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 serve a customer. Amazon is really like you know like down to the metal. I'm writing API, you know like yeah. I'm writing API calls. Is, is is a person who's played with both. Oh, I remember it's called Elastic Cloud Computing. Yes, okay. ECC. Yep, um, that's their compute. That and, and freaking Amazon. Uh, Amazon spends so much goddamn time coming up with a fucking buzzword name. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They got a lot of techno names, oh, and I think it just—I think it obfuscates their product. But you know what? They're they're still number one. Yeah. So they're doing something right. But I want to explain to the average layman how weird this process of of cloud is. 
I want to run something in the cloud. Let's say that it's my email system. And I realize that it's running really slow. And when I, when I start looking at it, just like you would on your PC, you see that some things are chewing up the processor, some things are chewing up the memory, and some things are chewing up the storage, right? And any of those three things can really, really slow down the performance of your computer. With Elastic Cloud Computing, you get a slider and you say, well, I want two processors. You just slide it to two. It immediately has two. It doesn't reboot anything. It, nobody's taking a processor out mm -hmm. and swapping a processor in. You want more memory? You just slide it up. It immediately has more memory. This concept of elastic hardware is really what made the cloud so valuable. Is this something that essentially is turning into a utility, though? Like, okay, Absolutely. I need more and, and I'm going to pay for more. Absolutely. <clears throat> sure. Absolutely. Okay. And well, it I is mean, a great industry. It's an extremely complex industry to create. You really need a monster like Amazon or Microsoft to spearhead these things. And there's other industries, by the way, that offer cloud services. Um, but but those are the two those are the two major ones. But absolutely it's a utility. You need more, you pay more. But you only pay for what you use, which is really nice. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's that's why Microsoft is finally number one. And nobody would have known it because they're not carrying around Microsoft phones and they really don't like Windows 10. Yeah, I think, well, <clears throat> I mean, there's some other factors too. They've also, I mean, if you remember five, six years ago, even even maybe a little longer back then, they were kind of under some government scrutiny with like, you know, uh, uh, antitrust yeah. kind of things like that. They've really flown on the radar, under the radar. They've really been out of the public eye, essentially, <clears throat> working behind the scenes and taking a, a bit of a different approach with it. Whereas before, you know, Microsoft was always kind of like the evil empire, but they've been flying under the radar almost purposely, letting essentially Google kind of take that role of, yeah, go ahead, take all the attention and all the money at first. And now, like, Google is hasn't had very good press lately and has had a lot of, uh, well government probes and things like that well you know this is you know this is also getting into diversification but that that, that whole thing with freaking amazon like their two new headquarters you know all, all all every after everything is said and done they they, they put they drop the plate you know like people say they drop the place in new york city because to piss Jeff, off trump right well, well, that was that, an SNL joke, right? Well, no, but actually, so uh, one because Jeff Bezos's actual primary house is on Long Island, mm -hmm. but really, it's because they want to get big into financial services, and they dropped the one in Virginia because they're with Google keep keeps stepping on its own dick, as it as it were, over its involvement with these like government creepy surveillance projects. Amazon's like, we'll take your money, and that's why they're dropping their. Second headquarters down in Virginia is because they're going to do all that, like, fucking big brother, citizen, you know, person of interest, uh, supercomputer shit. Um, yeah. And meanwhile, Microsoft is like, here, you want to you wanna run a website on our cloud stuff and make this awesome phone app that does machine vision and stuff like that? Go, go ahead, yeah. Google's been interesting. Um, Google has a lot of services that it's offered, retired, switched. One oh thing I found interesting, Google. and I really, this I'll blame Windows 8 for, <laughs> is this Google. whole UI design that a lot of the companies have switched to where everything is huge and you can never find what you need. 
right? It's this flat theme. Windows 8 really started the flat theme, but it's been adopted by websites. So like I sign into to, to Gmail and a lot of the interfaces have changed and there are all these flat themes and these big boxy pop-ups and stuff like that. And uh, in Google s seems to be pushing in that direction. And I first noticed it when I was an early adopter for Google+. Plus. Google+, Plus still is technically alive, although nobody really uses it. <laughs> yeah. But Google crammed down our throats. Google+, Plus, um, like... I, I, my business has a Google My Business page, and I run a I run a volunteer project that also has a Google My Business page. In order to manage the My Business section of Google search results, right, the one that says your your hours of operation and a link to the website and all the official info that shows up as that first search result when you're searching for a business. In order to manage that, Google forces you to create a Google Plus account, right? A Google Plus account is the equivalent of a Facebook account. Like they make you create this strange social media account just to manage a public listing. It was very weird. And from a business um, philosophy or philosophical aspect, if you have to cram it, then it's probably not a good idea. It's yeah. probably not going to be successful. And even how many how many happened. things like Facebook wasn't crammed in anyone's face. Well, it they was, just it was people wanted to use it. You Even know? weirder things happened. Like, like if I'm in Gmail and I, and I have a lot of customers that I email, um, on the course of a year, probably, I would say probably 3,000 different people I might email back and forth with. That might be on the high side. It might be closer to one or 2,000. But what happens is a lot of them have Gmail accounts. Now, they shouldn't be emailing me, my company, with a Gmail account usually. They should be using whatever account they have. But sometimes they're so small that's all they got. Or what actually happens quite a bit is we have a community mailing list that's 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 Google Groups, and they already have a Google Groups sign-in using their Gmail. So they'll ask a question on our free forum first before they reach out on our you know on our on our official support because they're like, well, yeah, maybe somebody else can benefit from this question. So what ends up happening is I get a I'd say maybe. 10 to 20% of the emails that I receive come in through people with Gmail accounts, which I don't think is a surprise to anyone, right? No. Even when it's not a Gmail account, it might be corporate Gmail under the scenes and they're just masquerading the, the, the gmail.com with their company name. And that's how, I, that's how my business operates. We use Google. So I'm getting all of these, these Gmails. And what happens is a lot of the time these people, uh, they email me over and over and over again. So I add them to my Google contacts. Also, it's nice if I want to chat with them on Hangouts, which is built into Gmail, so I can chat back and forth live with them, which is really nice. But what Google did is if they had a Google Plus account and I added them to my contacts, their fucking birthday shows up in my Google calendar. Yeah. What the yeah. fuck is that? <laughs> Yeah, well, it's because, why do I care that Carlos well, out of no, freaking Mexico it's has a birthday this week? I mean, it's kind of nice from a customer perspective it's because they have the birthday. But what the fuck? The the problem is is that Google has been successful in spite of themselves, and that they don't they like they have the attention span. It's 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 actually it's it's a Silicon Valley problem altogether. You know, like. You know, as much as Apple gets kind of grouped in it, Apple's not actually in that. They're the it. one that get, actually respects privacy. Well, it, Apple you, is the one company that respects privacy. You know, but in, in Microsoft kind of exists outside of that sphere, and even even Amazon. You know, like Amazon's got but but it, it, it's it's you know, like you 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 get that ta you get tagged with it. 
It's so but weird. I, don't, it's, it, I mean, what, what if I ask this guy how old he is? Now I know his exact date of birth. It's a little weird. It's definitely it's a misstep, obviously. It, well, it's just not well thought out. You know, and, and Facebook kind of does it too. But it's strange for me that, that a, a software, I use email a lot, and software that I use to conduct business with is going behind the scenes, getting people's personal information and jamming it on my work calendar. It is, in my, of course, my personal and work kind of fade together with my company. And I actually, I actually use my personal email for all my, my, my business needs. I just forward everything over, which is really, really nice. Most people probably would want to keep them separate. And some of the people that I work with, with my company do. They don't want to sign into their personal Gmail and see a bunch of work-related stuff. But I keep them together. They all funnel into one. My calendar is one. That way my phone doesn't need to monitor two calendars. I don't need to manage two calendars. I keep them all together. But yeah, it's really, really weird that they do that. And what, what really bothered me this week is that... There was rumors, and Google just confirmed that that Hangouts app that we're using to chat with each other—they're completely ripping out in 2020. Which is interesting because that's probably of all the Google suite, I guess, the, all all their applications that <clears throat> people use regularly. Aside from Gmail, Google Hangouts is probably the one. Well, Chrome obviously, but that's that's a little different. But Google Hangouts is like the only other thing I would even consider using. Yeah, so on my cell phone, I don't know what you use, Wade, but on my cell phone, um, I used to use Hangouts because I could chat with the Google people, like you know, people that have Gmail accounts, as well as do my text messages through it. Mm-hmm. And I loved it because I, I have a lot of people that, that are at work and they have Gmail open and they can chat back and forth with me. So whether it's a friend, whether it's for business... Hangouts worked really well. And for the people who are like, what the hell is Hangouts? It is iMessage, right? Yeah. It's iPhone's iMessage where you can text each other through through Wi-Fi without using a text. It's got a few more features, you know, just like iMessage has a few more features. You can tell when somebody's typing and stuff like that. Hangouts has all of that. But you can also use it for text. It's a great app. But what happened was, uh, I want to say about six months ago, although my timeline might be off, Google told all Android users they were ripping the SMS support out. They were trying to get people off of that platform. But what was weird is is that I fall into a strange category. I use Google Fi for my cell service. Yeah, talk about Google Fi a little bit because I don't think a lot of people use that, but it is certainly, clearly you're, you're proving it's an alternate kind of cell, cell provider. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely an alternate cell provider, and I'm still learning about how how they're competing with the other market. Um, um, and... and so well, to, to kind of finish up the point with Hangouts is Hangouts allow Fi, if you have a Fi, official Fi supported phone, right, which is about 10 phones on the market right now. If you have an official Fi supported phone, every single phone call and text that you send actually uses your data. It doesn't actually, it's not a real voice call. It, it uses your data. It's like Google has a service called Google Voice. It's, you're essentially placing a phone call through the Google Voice app, except it's all seamless on the phone. When you hit the phone icon, you're using all of your data for your phone calls, and you're using all your data for your texts. The nice part about this is, is that your texts go to Google servers, and you can access them from anywhere. So when I sign into Gmail, I see all the texts. I don't need to take my phone out. So if I'm at work, um, 
uh, at my day job and I want to check in and see, you know, if I got to pick something up on the way home from work, I don't have my phone out in my hands. I sign into Gmail. I see my wife's text. I reply to her through the browser and then I leave. And I just think it's a really nice feature. Now, Apple offers this identical feature through iMessage. However, Apple being Apple, you cannot use iMessage on anything but a Mac. Nobody uses Macs at work, or at least very few people do. So you can't really send your text messages through, uh, through your computer at work if you have an iPhone. So this is a really nice luxury, I feel, that Fi offers. And of course, Fi offers a lot of things. Hangouts allows me to do both. Now, Google tried to get people off of Hangouts back, I think it was like you know six months, a year ago, whenever, and they had this service called Allo, A-L-L-O. But the problem is, is I read the uh, the licensing agreement for ALLO, and its privacy was really, really bad. And I ended up I ended up not installing it, which was interesting because guess what? Nobody else did. Allo died, so I don't even know what they're going to replace Hangouts with. And somebody like me as a Fi customer, I need to be able to use both. My text messages aren't, aren't actually text messages, right? I mean, they're really right. going through Google servers. So I don't really know what's going to replace it. But even crazier, Hangouts is embedded inside Gmail. So when you sign in, you got all your contacts. You can tap on them and message them. Right. I don't know how they're going to rip that out of Gmail if they're going to have a replacement. And they haven't announced what the replacement is. So I, you know, just to finish out the Hangouts point, I don't know what they're going to replace it with. A lot of people think Hangouts should die a fiery death and they hate it. I think that it has its place and I think that it's really convenient to have a chat built into my email system. I am a little bit biased because I use Google Fi so I can also get my text messages there. But the really weird thing is that Hangouts app that I have on my phone, they told me I was going to lose the ability to text through it. As soon as I switched to be a Google Fi customer, the texting capabilities came back. So texting was not allowed through Hangouts. It's a feature they've pulled off of all of the Android phones. But I happen to be a golden exception because I'm a Fi customer and they don't know how else to do it, right? And it's because it's using all of this Google Voice stuff under the covers. So back to uh, Google Fi, which was Project Fi for, for, for years, and they just rebranded it to Google Fi. Um, it's a cell service. And... Uh, most people that know me on social media, I shared a link because uh, Wednesday, I think it was, of this week, they were offering $200 in Google Fi, and sorry for the people listening to this a week late, $200 in Google Fi credits, which means um, towards your bill, it's a prepaid style plan, $200 uh, in credits if you switch. The weird thing was is they were only offering it to people that switched. They were not offering it to brand new you know, people who are just buying a phone in, 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 you know, for the first time. So you had to switch from an existing provider and you had to port your phone number over. They, you, if you did not want to keep your old phone number, you would not get the $200 credit. Huh. Now, from what I understand, I, I, I've always sold Google Fi as being AT&T and Verizon Towers on one cell phone. But after reading into it, it seems like they use their primary towers are actually U.S. Cellular. U.S. Cellular being the main provider for uh, T-Mobile. 
and then they roam on the towers for uh, track phone, so like the straight talk towers and stuff like that. What I don't entirely understand, and maybe Gunner knows more about this than I do, I don't understand how there's this many fucking towers out there. It seems like there's just like a couple competing technologies, and the cell companies just lease those technologies from the towers. But well, is it not the case? Is there three or four? Or is it that one tower has three or four of no, each provider well, on it? So, so um, uh, yeah, uh, sadly, uh, in the interest of farming uh, addition, alternative revenue streams. So, we're actually, we're in the process of trying to track somebody down. Like, we're looking to rent land for a cell phone tower. Mm-hmm. And uh, the gist of it now is that most providers don't actually have their own towers themselves. They're renting off a third party. So, they'll... They'll, you know, like you say U.S. Cellular, effectively, they'll have their own, they'll have their transceivers mounted or co-located, so you'll have, like, a Verizon, T-Mobile, Sprint, or whatever, sitting on the same hub, you know, and it, it, it depends on what their, what their, um, prospective customer density is going to be and their, like, their coverage goals, because you may, you know, like, you may have, you may have multiple receivers in the same territory, Depending on how many customers you're trying to service, how much bandwidth you're trying to allocate to, because like yeah, the T- the T-Mobile one, it's literally you can see like the circles and it's 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 the it's that whole like don't step on the don't step on the crack, it's lava, you'll die. Mm-hmm. And even Verizon up where I live is this is is that, is that same skeep where you'll 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 hit blind spots that AT&T doesn't have. Right, right, and vice versa. Um, first of all, I've had it. The, our area is pretty rural, and the coverage has been good. Um, the downside to it is uh, when you hop some of these towers, and I believe I do connect to both Verizon and AT&T, but I don't know if all phones are capable of this. This is the part that I'm, they haven't really explained in detail, and it's going to take somebody that really understands cellular technology that jumps on Google Fi without a Google Fi approved phone to know exactly what the, what the limitations are if you don't have one of these special phones. I happen to be a Pixel 3 owner. I do have an approved Fi device, so I get all of the benefits of that. Um, uh, uh, what was I saying here? Um, the hopping towers. When, when the phone hops tower, sometimes it drops calls. Now, this makes sense, really, right? I mean, you're in the middle of a phone call, you hop towers, the call drops. What's interesting is that it was never an actual real phone call. It was a data call. So what what actually happens is this strange chopping and the audio gets weird and then usually I have to just call back again and when it establishes a connection on the new data line, everything's flowing fine. And I think it's a technological problem with getting data and turning it into the plain old phone line service. And I think the plain old phone line service doesn't really have a good it doesn't do a good job of recovering from some of these partially disconnected calls. Oh, um, T- T-Mobile does actually. So T- T-Mobile's whole network now is it's data. Is data. So okay. you, you don't actually like. Yes, you have to. You have to have a four active four G connection. So the voice quality on it. I mean, just to give you an idea, I, for some reason when I call my um, the the uh, the guy who services my furnace. My mm. phone calls with him when I'm on the highway. There is a two second delay between me talking and him hearing it. So the voice definitely has problems. Even in my own home, I have problems. Now, part of that might be because of the spotty Wi-Fi that I have at home. I might need to put in some more access points so that the signal's stronger when I'm in other parts of the house. But I'll be talking to him there, and it's like the phone, 
it has shot, it has a, a really bad Wi-Fi connection. So it'll switch to cellular and then switch back to Wi-Fi. And in that experience is not great. And it will get better as more homes have stronger Wi-Fi. Um, but that that's definitely a complaint that I have because I like to start off with 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 the negative. That's the negative part of it. Um, there's some positive sides to it though. First of all, I don't talk all that much on the phone, so I don't really experience the voice quality issues that much. I don't talk that much. When I do, it's usually my it's usually like my car mechanic or you know this guy that fixes my furnace because they don't really like to have long conversations through text like my friends do, and that's fine. Um, what's really nice about it is. Uh, it's a sliding data plan. And that I think a lot of people are attracted to because when they look at their unlimited data plans or they look at their 10 gigs a month data plan, they might not really be utilizing it. It's not like data really rolls over. I think there's some plans where it does, but I don't really know of any. So what happens is, is you're paying for 10 gigs and only using you know a portion of that. Or your family is hitting your 10 gig limit and now everybody's on freaking trickle charge until the end of the month comes around yeah. and, you, and you start your bill again. Google has a really interesting approach. Google Fi gives you uh, zero gigabytes of data for $20 a month. You get no data for 20 bucks a month. If you pay them another 10 bucks, you get one gig of data. All right. Now it's a prepaid plan. So you can tell them to never go over that one gig or you can tell them to go over the gig and just bill you. Right. It's fixed pricing. It's a dollar a gig. However, once you hit six gigs of data, they give you to 15 gigs for that same price, and then they start trickling it, right? So essentially what you get is for 80 bucks a month, you get 15 gigs of data, and if you exceed that 15 gigs, it'll slow down. However, you don't need to stop at 15 gigs. For that 80 bucks a month, if you spend 90, they'll give you 16 gigs, right? You spend 100, They'll give you 17 gigs. So it really is a sliding data plan, but right in that, I would say, like the Goldilocks zone of the data sweet usage. spot, yeah. 10, 10, a 10 gig range right now is a pretty big plan, I'd say, for a single person, for a family, very different situation. For a family, 10 to 15 is probably the sweet spot as far as what one would consider regular yeah. kind of like usage. Now, I'm a very, very heavy cell phone use. Uh, uh, user. However, my cell phone use at work, I'm fortunate enough to work for the IT department at work. So my cell phone use at work goes through the actual wireless there. So I don't burn up my data at work when I'm playing, you know, I might pull up a, like a training video on YouTube on my lunch break, or maybe it's just a cat video, right? That um, if I'm if I'm actually on site, I'm I'm not chewing up my bandwidth. Video does is the largest consumer of bandwidth, and services like Facebook are immune to it because Facebook has a lot of auto playing videos now, right? Mm -hmm. And that chews up tons of bandwidth. They the auto playing videos are at a lower resolution, so it's less bandwidth. But the moment you full screen those things, you know they're chewing up. You got a 1080p video, it's chewing up as much data as a Netflix movie would for for the duration of time. I mean, it's usually not as it's usually not an hour long, but um, so the sliding data plan is, is, is attractive. If you add another phone to the same plan, instead of being uh, $20 for that line, it's 15 okay. So all additional lines are 5 bucks cheaper. Um, and those, all those phones, uh, I, don't, I think that they use a shared data plan, which is nice, right? Because you've got like the 10 gig plan through Verizon for your whole family and stuff like that. So it's, it's a pretty attractive deal. The $200 incentive made it really, really nice, but it was only Wednesday, which was sad. Um, a lot of people didn't find out about that until Thursday. 
and it was too late. I can tell you, my coworker switched all three of his family phones and my wife switched her phone off of Straight Talk to Google Fi. Um, so I do know people that switched because of that promotion. Um, so that's the that's the data. Of course, all the phones, all the calls go through Wi-Fi, all the or through data. Um, all the texts go through data. Um, one thing that was interesting, and this is getting more popular with the phones. I know the Apple Watch has done this: is SIMless activation. Now, for phones that support it, what you do is you sign into your Google account, and Google just installs a, a software SIM on your phone. So when I activated Fi on my latest Pixel 3, my latest Pixel 3 has this software SIM capability. I just signed into my Google account, and all of a sudden it said LTE on my phone, and I, could, I had my data, I had everything. It all just worked. So that's a pretty cool concept. That's not exclusive to Google. Um, like I said, the uh, um, the Apple Watch, I think the three, maybe all of them. Yeah, I think all the Apple Watches. The Apple Watch is too small to fit a SIM card in. They had to make the entire watch bigger. So the software SIM has been something that's been around. But phones generally ha haven't really had it. Like People kind of liked that little plastic card sliding it in and, and switching over. Yeah, um, I don't know. Verizon, I use Verizon. Verizon doesn't use SIM cards. They don't? No. Well, now they do. Oh, really? Yes, if you have a 4G phone. I have a 4G phone. There's no SIM card in this. Uh, You've well, popped the door option. open? Yeah. And there's no, nothing the, in it? I mean, like, I... So you got a software SIM, too? Yeah, but it, it, it's... CDMA didn't have a SIM card, but... Yeah, when back they went in to the four, But they went to 4G when, no, when, they, had to, when yeah. they went to 4G. Yeah, so, Wade, you got a software SIM in there, though. Yeah. If you don't have a yeah. little door. If you don't have a little chip... You do have the door, right? No. Hold I mean, on. like, did you did you did you have it activated at the store? I can promise you. Yes. Did you? Okay, so then, yeah, they they have a console app that will. I promise you, you have the little do the little SIM card door. Really? Yeah, yeah. all phones have them now. I can't fucking get the fucking even thing off my phone, so I guess it doesn't really matter. Man, why did, did I guess did, it's a good case if you can't take it off? You yeah, really. Drill in the podcast. You know what happens? It's it's actually part of the phone now. Wade. It is. It's like fucking. It's like melted into the skin. It of the is. Phone. It's become a part of it. It's a cyborg. You're, 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 you're like you're like a tragically obese person sitting on a couch, and the couch has now become confused with oh, them. Oh God! Phone, couch. My phone doesn't smell bad. So that's the major major advantage of Google Fi. One thing that's weird is that if you use Google Voice, a lot of people do. Um, you actually can't combine Google Voice and Google Fi. So this was a sad thing. Um, I had a secondary phone number that I would give some people. Um, and it would it could ring my phone, but it used Google Voice instead. And it was nice if you didn't want to give out your phone. Or in my case, um, I actually had it on like some of my business cards, so my company phone could be that. Um, or let's say you used to have a house phone, but you still want to you still want to receive your phone calls. You can port your house phone over to Google Voice and still receive them. Google Fi ties up the one Google Voice line you're allowed to have as it, under your Google account, so you actually have to get rid of your Google Voice account. In my case, I I just created another Gmail account. <laughs> transferred it over to that gmail account but now i got to sign into that gmail account every time i want to get to my voicemails and stuff so that's one of the disadvantages to it if, if you are an existing google voice customer you do have to ditch your google voice phone number uh, in order to switch to fine that's because under the covers fi uses it for everything but what's interesting is that they they've offered this service for iphone now right so originally it was only for approved google uh, android devices and there's i think every major 
phone manufacturer had one phone that would work on Fi. But this past week, and it was part of their promotion, they said, you know, you switch today, you get your 200 bucks. iPhone was on that list, but it was listed as beta status. Hmm. So iPhone is a weird experience because it, with iPhone, they have a feature called visual voicemail. And it's probably the worst name. But what it is is it means that your phone actually downloads your voicemail. And then you can click play on your phone even if you're not attached to any networks. So your voicemails are downloaded to the phone and then you can, cl you can click play and you can fast forward. The you can fast forward and rewind. So they call it visual because you have a visual. You can yeah, but it, it, means it makes it sound like it's voice to text. And that's what's interesting is in order to use the iPhone with Google Fi, you have to switch your voicemail to Google. Google Voicemail actually transcribes your voicemails. So, like, I, t I talked to my wife about this as well as my coworker because both of them are on iPhones. They both didn't want the visual voicemail. They wanted the voice to text. Yeah. Because most of the time, you can see it's the school, you know, it's your school calling about your kid or it's your, it's your barber calling about your appointment or something. And you can just by reading the text, even if they translated it wrong, you have a good idea what they're calling about. And the phone numbers are usually pretty accurate. So if there's a callback number, with with Google, it, it'll it'll actually format it like a phone number when it comes through in the voice to text, and you can tap on it. Oh, nice. So you could call them back. Now I have had once in a while call the wrong phone number because Google Voice didn't really understand what they were saying, or uh, voice to text, I should say. But for the most part, it's nice. Um, you but the, the the disadvantage is those iPhone users that are used to clicking the play button on their phone, if they actually want to hear it, like they don't know what they said, you know, like got translated so bad, they actually have to sign in and play it using you know you sign in with your pin, and then you play it like, like we used to use voicemail. Right. Yeah. So that's one of the um, that's one of the downsides with iPhone. The other thing that they, they haven't really spelled out was how the cellular tower hopping works. And this is something that I'm going to know firsthand once once the um, my wife's SIM card comes in. But uh, th th they make it sound like that cellular tower hopping is limited. Um, one thing that's really nice about Google Fi, and this is really one of the major reasons that my wife switched, is that uh, she was on Straight Talk. And by now, I think most people have heard of Straight Talk, but Straight Talk is owned by TrackPhone. And Straight Talk is, you know, a fixed data plan. It's, I think, I think now they're up to 10 gigs a month for 50 bucks. Great plan. You can pick your carrier, AT&T, Verizon, whatever. It's the cheapest and the most data that I've really seen. It's actually a better, I feel like it's a better deal than Veri or than, uh, than Google Fi. However, I got burned. I mean, you remember my story, yeah. Wade. Yeah. I got burned. I placed a tech support. I got really upset with them because they didn't have an option for turning on tethering. And when I hung up my phone, my cellular service was dead. And getting back my cellular service re required me to sweet talk a drug dealer in another state to give me my phone number back. Somehow he had bought my SIM number. I think they were printing them like in the black market, but somehow he had acquired my phone number. And it happened like at the moment that I hung up the phone with tech support. So I really feel I was sabotaged by, by tech support from Straight Talk, although I have no way of actually proving that. I did say on the phone, and I actually quoted this. I was typing down my conversations with them. I was actually in tears by the end of the, my, my experience with Straight Talk. But I actually said to the technician, I said, I feel like, I feel like somebody on your team sabotaged me. And he answered, probably. Jesus Christ. I am not kidding. And I yeah. fucking quoted this. I sent a submission to the Better Business Bureau. So people say Straight Talk's good, but their customer service sucks. Their customer service is okay because they do the callback thing. 
during peak hours, they say, hey, if you want, hit one, and then we'll just call back your phone number, and they do. Yeah. And they do fix your problems, and they are pretty good. But that one experience that I had with them burned me as a customer for life. So I was, I, I decided I wanted to ditch them. Plus, they didn't allow tethering, and I want data on the road, right? I want to be able to open up my laptop. I want to be able to use my cellular data on the road. So Google Fi allows tethering as part of their plan because you're paying for the gigs, right? They're making right. more I mean, money yeah, if you, you use it. What, what does it matter what you use it on if you're paying for the the data? It shouldn't just be locked to one device. Well, that, that you won't. Well, actually, you know, and again, not to not to justify uh, serious shady shit, but that's why you run uh, private internet access VPN on your phone. Yeah, but it doesn't work. All those, all those old school tethering circumventer apps. Oh no, I'm saying it's actually VPN, so you don't you you you're 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 actually having a VPN connect, data connection on your phone itself. Yeah, that's fine. But what I'm saying is, is that um, you you still need to tether your data. You need to use a technology that allows you to tether, right? Which is going to be either a USB cable or the hotspot button on the phone. Yeah. The hotspot button on the phone checks your carrier to see if you can actually turn your radio on. It's really just a check. And you can hack the Android operating system. It's actually an INI file. Mm -hmm. And you can change a false to a true. And you can actually hack your Android phone and get get tethering no matter what. Yeah. Um, However, it it actually voids your Android operating system and your updates get turned off. Because it's a core file. Well, because um, the other the other one is that they'll, they'll um, at least on the iPhone, what it would do is that it actually it actually looks for um, it looks oh, what the heck is that value on the front of a freaking packet? So it it, it it looks to see how many hops. Yeah, but the, the thing is, Gunner, is in order for your your phone to act as a DHCP server, right? Mm-hmm. Wireless devices can connect to it. The only way to do that within the operating system of iOS or Android is to tap the hotspot button. There's no other way to do it. Okay. You know what I'm saying? The yeah. operating system, I know what you're saying on a technical level, but the operating system doesn't allow you to turn on hotspot unless it checks the carrier. It's an agreement that the carrier's worked out. Now, the fucked up part about this, and this is something that I'm really upset about, is the people versus Verizon ruled that on when you're paying for your data, Verizon is not allowed to discriminate how you use it, right? So what's happening is the straight talks of the world they call it an unlimited plan. It is not, by the way. That is a fucking lie. It is not unlimited. When I was on their service plan, it was a five gig plan. It's right in the fine print. If you exceed five gigs, they slow you down to 2G. Mm-hmm. Now I believe it's been bumped up to 10 gigs, which makes it even better of a deal. Um, if you exceed 10 gigs right in the fine print, it slows down your bandwidth to 2G or 3G, 3G, right? Um, that's a huge problem because they're branding it as unlimited but it's you're really paying for those gigs and they should not be able to discriminate and that's really the argument that i got with with i'm like get your supervisor on the phone give me an option to turn on tethering i don't care if it's five bucks more i want tethering on my plan and that's that's when the whole sabotage thing happened and uh, and i lost my phone number i did end up getting it back and the reason i got into tears is because the the guy from um uh i want to say loss prevention or i don't what's the the, the the department that handles stolen stuff yeah um like they handle shrinks and stuff like that that's uh loss prevention essentially yeah yeah the guy that i talked to would not let me reactivate my phone unless i sent him the a fax with a picture of the i think it's emie or imei um uh code on the back of my phone proving 
that it was that I was the one that that was in um, possession of of a straight talk phone. The problem is, is that all I had was my SIM card. The guy that, that ended up with my number somehow had obtained my SIM card anyway. So that number really meant nothing because it was my SIM number. Furthermore, I didn't have access to a fax machine. Right. And I'm like, what? I'm like, this is 20. And he, he said to me, he goes, listen to me very carefully. If you don't do these three things, I'm going to hang up the phone on you and you will not get your phone number back. And he says, step one, you need to find the EMIE number on the back of your phone. It might be underneath your battery. You need to take a picture and you need to fax this to me. And that will prove to me that you are actually the owner of this phone. And I said, but wait, I don't actually have an EMIE on my phone. And he's like, listen to these three things or I'm going to hang up the phone on you. And he says, number two, you need to fax me. And I said, sir, I don't even own a fax machine. How, how would you recommend I get this information to you? And he hung up. So it, it was the worst customer service experience I've had. But that said, it's a great fucking deal. Straight Talk is a great fucking deal. How would you take a picture of it and then fax it is my question. Yeah, I don't know. Like, would you have to get the photo fucking developed, like, or I don't know. I think a lot of um, a lot of fax modern fax machines are actually the, the only printers. Yeah, and yeah, they have the scanner on them, and the scanner's capable. If you of were sending in an office, fax. I guess. But who the fuck? I mean, aside from yeah, who's got like the? I mean, I guess. And, well, and no, I was prepared I, to use one of those like internet to fax websites. Yeah, well, they'll do it for you. But okay. so, um. I don't know where I was going with all of this, but but Straight Talk is Straight Talk uses the track phone service. They make you choose your carrier. So whether you're T-Mobile, Sprint, Verizon, AT and T, you actually pop the SIM card in for that carrier, and those are the towers that you ride on. And their data plans are a great deal. Um, Fi, on the other hand, I don't exactly know which towers it's using when you're on a non official Fi device. So like my wife, I'll know soon enough, when we pop that Google Fi SIM card in, um, it, you do actually have to change settings on the phone as well, which is unheard of with an iPhone. With an iPhone, usually you go to system updates, tap update, and all the APN settings, your your MMS settings, your SMS settings are all updated by the carrier mm-hmm. um, uh, automatically. You don't actually have to worry about any of that. There are some settings on the phone. She has an unlocked iPhone. Um, there are some settings on the phone that she is going to have to go into to make sure that her text messages go through and stuff okay. like that. Nice. Um, but I don't know what tower she's going to be riding on. That's the part that I'm not exactly sure of. From what I've found out, U.S. Cellular is the provider, um, but I'm not exactly sure what that means. I looked up the coverage map, and it seems to be nearly identical for Verizon in this area, in the you know the the East Coast. The East Coast was pretty much all lit up for both carriers. However, you get to the Midwest, there were some pretty big gaps with the uh, with the with the coverage, and I also don't know the the quality of that um, aside from my own experience. Gotcha. Well, we're actually a little bit short, but pretty close to the two-hour mark. So we thank everybody for tuning in and listening and look forward to your feedback. And uh, everybody have a good day.